0: from 2 Kings 6. And I hope you're enjoying this sermon series as much as I am. There's really some really fun Bible stories that maybe we don't always get to in this section of Scripture, I think. And I'm actually very happy that I get to preach on this one because I think it's particularly fun. Uh, But if you'll turn to 2 Kings 6, and just to remind you of the context, throughout this whole section, there's been this sort of off-again, on-again war between Aram or Syria. I'm probably going to say Aram because that's the Hebrew At some point, some Greek people got confused about where Assyria was, and that's why we call it Syria today. But um, but there's been this conflict between Syria or Aram and Israel, and this is yet another entry in that long-standing conflict. So, 2 Kings 6, starting at verse 8, let's pay attention to God's word. "'Once, when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, "'At such and such a place shall be my camp.'" But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him, so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, Go and see where he is that I may send and seize him. It was told him, Behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent there horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike these people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to him, This is not the way, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? He answered, You shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them, that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast, and when they had eaten and drunk, he, went, he sent them away, and they went to their master. And the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on the preaching of the word. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open our eyes to the truth contained in this story, that we would understand your words and what you mean to say to us by your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the 1994 movie, Angels in the Outfield, yes, I am making a sports analogy, this is rare. <laughs> uh, the baseball team, the Angels, gets divine assistance from Angels, it's pretty confusing, in order to win uh, the World Series. But only one child can actually see any of the Angels. Now, I don't want to fully endorse the theology of this movie, but one thing that it highlights is the difficulty of Not being able to see what's really going on. The fact that these angels are invisible, you know, means that when it looks like the pitcher is not going to be able to throw a good pitch, they make it go super fast. Or when they put up their worst batter, they like slow down the baseball until it stops and he can hit it. And so everybody's instincts are off. The people they think are bad batters are actually really good. The people that they think are good are actually prevented. And that's a theme that we'll carry into our story, which also has some invisible angels in it, uh, but in a situation maybe a little more serious than a baseball game. So we're going to see three points as we look at this passage today. First of all, we're going to see that we're often blind to the spiritual world. Second, we're going to see that we're often surprised by God's compassion. And third, we're going to look at how God triumphs through mercy in Jesus, So three points, we're often blind to the spiritual world, we're often surprised by God's compassion, and God triumphs through mercy in Jesus. Okay, so my first point, we're often blind to the spiritual world. So in our passage, there's a group of soldiers that literally get struck blind. Well, that's not the only kind of blindness that's going on. Uh, first of all, we have to recognize a certain blindness in the king of Aram. Our story begins with him sending these raiding parties out to strategic locations. But every time he does this, the prophet Elisha warns the king about his troop movements, and so his attack doesn't work. By the way, supernatural sight seems to sort of be a characteristic gift for Elisha, If you remember, Elijah told him that he would get this double portion of the spirit he asked for, and he'd know it if he saw the chariots and horses of fire that accompany Elijah into heaven. And sure enough, he does see them. Um, And uh, then in our story from last week, his servant Gehazi tries to make this deal behind his back, but he's supernaturally enabled to see what Gehazi is doing. In the earlier story, when his... Friend and benefactor, the Shunammite woman, loses her son, um, he's actually really disturbed. He says, the Lord didn't hid it from me. It's, it's actually very unusual for him not to get all the intel from God. Uh, and so back in our passage, Elisha's putting his skills to work for the king of Israel. I imagine this is a good passage for those of you who work in intelligence. This would probably be a great skill to be able to have. It's also noteworthy, too, because, you know, if you've been looking at the Elijah-Elisha story, we don't, we don't know. It doesn't say which king we're talking about here precisely, but things aren't usually very good between the king of Israel and the prophet. But nevertheless, in God's grace, Elisha is using his gift to bless God's people, even though the king may not be everything that one desires. Okay, so anyway, back in Damascus, the king of Aram is getting pretty paranoid. He's trying to find the mole in his operation. But then he's told about Elisha. And what is his response? Let's get some chariots and take him out. Notice the blindness here. I mean, how does he expect this plan to work? Elisha has already seen all of his troop movements. Um, but the king of Aram, he can't think of any way to solve his problem except for violence. And when all you got is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. And so the king continues to put all of his trust in horses and chariots. Okay, so the first rays of the sun are rising over Dothan, and Elisha's servant starts his morning routine. I actually asked chat GPT to write uh, the, the servant's routine in, in, in the, a modern style, and you can check my Twitter for that. I was really impressed that it figured out he was probably going for water. That's probably step one. Get up, go for water. So, you know, he gets up early in the morning and heads out for water, and what does he see? There's like horses and chariots everywhere. And by the way, chariots, those are really scary, you know, maybe you've played a video game like Age of Empires. You probably realize this. And these are the tanks of the ancient world. So imagine there's, you know, a ring of M1 Abrams all the way around his position. Uh, understandably, he kind of freaks out. But Elisha doesn't freak out. Instead, he says, do not be afraid. There are more with us than there are with them. We outnumber them. Huh? What do you mean, Elisha? There's the entire Aramean army out there. Well, you see, it's not just the Gentiles, like the king of Aram, who have a blindness issue. Uh, This servant, even though he's part of the people of Israel, even though he literally works for the prophets, uh, has a profound spiritual blindness. What's really real to him is the physical things that he can see. But Elisha knows better, and so he prays that God would open his eyes, and he gets a peek into the spiritual realm. And when he does, he sees the whole mountain around Elisha just covered with chariots of fire. Where did these guys come from? Well, it seems like this must be the heavenly host. You know, these are the same chariots, I think, that gave Elijah his funerary escort. Um, Presumably, this is something like those creatures Ezekiel's going to see later on, strange, otherworldly, powerful beings whose movements can't really be understood through the laws of physics. This is why, by the way, we call God the Lord of hosts. We see that sometimes in the Old Testament. It's because he has a host, an army of angels that go around and do his bidding, and they are all surrounding Elisha. Maybe some verses from the Psalms come to mind here. Psalm thirty-four, seven: The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Or Psalm ninety-one, eleven: For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. The servant sees here that these verses are true about Elisha. He is surrounded by angelic protection. Elisha is God's man, and God has his back. And we can gather from this a certain amount of comfort for ourselves as believers that God has his angels, and they're very much, although we can't see him, see them, part of what's going on day to day. Let's stop for a second and and apply this point for a while. You know, just like Elisha's servant, we can easily get captivated by what we can see with our physical eyes. Uh, The tangible power of this world. But how would it change your perspective if you factored in the invisible spiritual reality? The Bible teaches that there is another dimension to this world, a world of angels and demons where God's power is invisibly at work. We have powerful allies for our calling here in the world. Referring to this spiritual battle, John says in 1 John 4:4, little children, you are from God and have overcome them he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So let me ask you, let's think about it. What are some obstacles that are facing you, preventing you, it would seem, from fulfilling your calling that God has called you to right now in the world? Um, maybe it's some kind of opposition, a difficult relationship situation that seems like relationally impossible. There's just no way I can't do one more day with my boss without blowing up. Maybe those obstacles are things you see in your own self, a weakness, or even sin, a, a battle, a demon that seems just too big for you to defeat. How would it change your perspective if you really believed greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world? I think that raises another question, which is, what if changing your perspective is really hard, right? It it can be. I mean, it can be easy to say, okay, we're in church Sunday morning. Yes, that's true. But then, I'm out in the world and in the middle of it. Um, And most of us, I don't think, ever get this exact experience of being able to physically see that other world. We have to live by faith and not by sight, But this passage still has an answer for us. Elisha gives his servant this gift through prayer. He prays that God would open his eyes. That's something God has to do. The Bible says that spiritual truths are spiritually discerned. And Melanie read us those wonderful Bible stories of a couple characters, Balaam and Paul, who were both unable to see what was going on, even if maybe Balaam's donkey knew knew the deal, until, what, God opened their eyes. We can and should be seeking in prayer for God to give us eyes of faith so that we can see this world as full of God's power. And that faith, that worldly things might look small to us because we know what God can do. So let's be seeking that in prayer. Okay, that's the first point. We're often blind to the spiritual world. Second point, we are often surprised by God's compassion. So where does the story go from here? What would you expect? I mean, we have all of these heavenly fire chariots. Again, if you play video games like Age of Empires, you double-click to select all your units, right-click to attack. Let's go. We're going to win this in no time but that isn't what happens, is it? Instead, Elisha prays, and the Aramean army is struck with blindness. Okay? Actually, this is the same word for blindness that the men at Sodom and Gomorrah who are besieging Lot's house gets struck with, so, so maybe it's going to be the brimstone and fire from heaven that comes next. But no, that's not what happens, is it? Instead, Elisha offers to lead them to the man they are seeking. It's really kind of funny, you know, it's Elisha the whole time, but there he is leading them on this goose chase. And he takes them all the way to the capital city, Samaria. Okay, maybe we, now we think we know what's, what's going to happen. As they're in Samaria, this fortified city with, you know, a large military contingent and their eyes are open. surely now we're just going to slaughter them, right? And the king of Israel, he's ready to go. You can sort of sense some of the breathless anticipation. Should I kill them? Should I kill them, my father? But Elisha says, you should not strike them. And by the way, Hebrew distinguishes pretty rigorously between a a sort of personal command, something like, you know, don't kill them, I'd prefer you didn't, from something that's more of a moral fact and that's what we have here you should not kill them there's something about this situation that makes it inappropriate to suggest that and that seems to be because the king has had no role in capturing them himself i think i'd translate what he said elisha says next is is it those you have captured with your sword and your bow that you're about to kill and the answer is no These are the Lord's prisoners, and the Lord has determined that he's going to show mercy upon them. I think this is an important scripture to put alongside some of the other scriptures that we've looked at here. I mean, the mistake the king makes seems pretty understandable to me. After all, Ahab, uh, in 1 Kings 20, had gotten in trouble when he showed Ben-Hadad mercy without asking God's permission first. God had put Ben-Hadad under the ban of execution. But God's compassion here makes it clear that Ben-Hadad is actually the exceptional situation. There are these situations in the Old Testament, places where God commands the people to carry out a warfare of complete extermination. We see that with the Canaanites. We see that with the Amalekites. And it happens with Ben-Hadad personally, possibly because he goes so far in defying God's power but it's not a general rule. It's not the pattern that God sets up for dealing with enemies generally. Vengeance against enemies is not the standard operating procedure for dealing with Gentile nations in a war. Here, we see God responding in mercy, seeking peace. And that follows up the previous chapter, where we saw God showing grace to Naaman, the general of the Aramean army, who we're told had even enslaved people. Here we see this mercy to the Arameans again. God has a place in his plan for these Gentiles. They've come to kill his prophet, but he's not only spared their life, he actually commands that they be hosted. Verse 23 says that the king prepares a great feast. I'm actually a little unsure about um, just bread and water in the ESV. I think that probably there was some wine as well. This is a big feast. They get to eat their fill of food and wine before they get sent back to their master to tell him everything that's happened to them. I think especially since it is Pentecost Sunday, we should note this theme of the inclusion of the Gentiles as a bit of a foreshadowing of the day when the tongues of fire from heaven fall on the first believers so that they can share the gospel in every language. You know, like the fiery chariots in our story, that heavenly power does not come to destroy, but to share the gospel of Jesus. I also think it's worth stopping for a moment and asking what God's mercy here means for how we should think about war. And this might be something that we don't talk that much about in the church today, But the Christian tradition has had a lot to say about the ethics of warfare over the centuries. And just to give you a bit of an overview, there have been some in the history of the church who've been pacifists. After all, if Jesus says, love your enemies and turn the other cheek, how can his followers justify going to war? Consider Paul's words in Romans 12, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Overall, Jesus and his apostles give us an ethic of loving our enemies, you know, and maybe Paul was even thinking of this story as he's talking about feeding and, uh, and giving food and drink to your enemies. Still, the majority of Christians have recognized that while warfare is a terrible thing, there are some situations where it may be morally acceptable as a response to evil. After all, John the Baptist and Jesus talk to multiple soldiers without ever suggesting that they should quit their jobs or resist their calling. And Paul himself is going to go right into Romans 13 and say that God's given a legitimate use of the sword to the states to restrain evil and protect the innocent. So surely it can use the sword to protect its citizens. Still, the problems raised by violence in response to Jesus' call to love and Jesus' example of laying down his life for others have led theologians through the ages to put strict limits on what counts as just war. And it's important that we, as we think about war, are guided by the high value the Bible places on life, as well as the priority of mercy over vengeance. Uh, I'm not going to go into all the details of just war theory, but let me just summarize uh, a couple of key points. The first part is that a war is only just Uh, if it's fought for the right reasons. So a war can only be carried out by a legitimate state authority, if there's a good probability of success, if it's a response to a grave evil endangering many human lives, and if other measures to resolve the conflict fail. So that's about the reasons for why you go to war. But then there's another part of just war, which involves how you fight the war because just because you're doing it initially for the right reasons doesn't mean you're doing it in the right way. Just because there's a legitimate reason to get into a war doesn't mean you can do anything in prosecuting it. Those fight, And the summary here is that those fighting the war need to focus on enemy combatants. They need to avoid the deaths of civilians as much as possible. Military action should be directed to ending the war with as little loss of life as possible in the way that's most likely to lead to lasting peace. So that's a brief summary of the the teaching of the church over the centuries. It's this respect for life in the middle of war that I think connects most with our passage today. Um, specifically, respect for human life has implications for how we treat captives in war. In the Middle Ages, the Italian monk Gratian, one of the most important just war theorists, said in his discussion: "Since violence is paid back to one who makes war and resists, so in victory mercy is owed to the captured immediately." especially whenever the disruption of peace is not to be feared. Insofar as captives don't represent an imminent threat of violence, violence against them is not justified. That's what Gratian is saying. Now, it's true. I'm, I was looking at some of the ancient Near Eastern sources here. Many pagan leaders have showed mercy to captives in the ancient world. That happened a lot. Even the hardest among them generally recognized that it was kind of often a good tactic to show mercy sometimes. But something they generally believed is that they themselves were the ones who had discretion over it. Maybe they were going to show mercy, maybe they weren't. I think what's special in the Christian tradition is this idea that God is the one who has the ultimate right of vengeance over individual lives, and that means that Christian leaders actually have to limit their use of violence. In fact, they're normally obligated to show mercy to captives. Uh, and actually, in the early modern period, these considerations drove the development of international law and, and human rights in Europe. It was thinking through some of these biblical issues. Okay, that's all real, much easier to talk about in theory than in practice. I want to acknowledge that. And we can talk about what a just war would be, but it's hard to point out an example of one in real life, especially if we aren't just sort of assigning blame for who starts it, but holding both sides to a really high standard in how they fight. Um, And there's many examples of hypocrisy in, in the history of the Christian world, where people claimed to hold these ideas but acted very differently. But I think how we think about war still matters. And part of the reason I wanted to spend so much time on it in our sermon today is that, especially in the 20th century, I think a lot of us have abandoned the church's traditional teaching. Consider World War II, for instance. I mean, from our country's perspective, it's a good example of a defensive war. I wouldn't question that. But when it comes to how we fought the war, we killed hundreds of thousands of civilians from the bombing of Dresden, the firebombing of Tokyo, and the nuclear weapons used at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And it's important to understand that that would have been completely unacceptable from a traditional Christian just war perspective. I know that might be kind of a controversial thing to say. Because of how we feel about that war, and I don't for a second mean to denigrate the sacrifices of so many in a war that was overall for a just cause, but I also think it's important not just to sort of take a naive attitude that we were the good guys and never did anything wrong. I also recognize that getting into the weeds on these kinds of difficult wartime decisions can be really, really complicated and difficult. I'm not giving the ethical issues the full discussion they deserve here this morning. But but my goal is to get you thinking about this important area of biblical ethics, and hopefully I've at least provoked you to do that. We often think about, in the modern world, um, our culture turning against biblical ethics, maybe in the realm of sexual ethics or in respect for unborn life. I want to convince you to add just war to that list of traditional Christian ideas that we turned our back on. And I want you, as politically engaged Christians, to ask awkward and difficult questions about why and how our country fights wars today. I don't have all the answers about that, but I think that we're supposed to respond to the mercy God shows in warfare in this passage, and that part of what that response means is that committed Christians should be known as those who advocate for restraint, mercy, and preservation of life in times of war. So I know I might be opening a huge can of worms here, Uh, a big debate, I think there's one clear thing we can take away from our passage. God does not desire victory at any cost. And we can see the wisdom in God's mercy. Verse 23 says that the raids into Israel ceased. By showing mercy, God brings about peace and seems to convince the king of Aram to stop sending raids, at least for the moment. And so his decision actually preserves life on both sides of the conflict. At the same time, we need to recognize, though, that this peace doesn't last forever. In the story that starts at the end of this chapter, we see the Aramean army returning once again. We see Samaria under siege, and and we actually see some real brutal descriptions of what it's like to live under that siege. I think the author is doing that probably on purpose to make us wrestle with God's choice here a bit. Maybe the king, at that point, regretted not killing those Aramean soldiers. Um, Maybe he felt like a temporary peace wasn't worth it. I think the difficult truth is that if we are always driven by fear of the future violence our enemies do, then we're always going to feel justified in using violence against them. Every Aramean soldier left alive could be a future threat. So the fact that God himself shows mercy even in the face of that risk suggests that sometimes we ought to take that risk as well. And so mercy to our enemies, even in times of war, not just thinking about strategic military consequences. Okay, that's our second point. We're often surprised by God's compassion. Third and final point, God triumphs through mercy in Jesus. We've spent some time talking about how this passage interacts with Jesus' teaching. Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, turn the other cheek if someone hits you. But we should also remember how Jesus lived this out. His whole life was an expression of God's mercy toward enemies as he came to a world that was hostile to him to show God's mercy to it. You know, the big paradox of our passage, the really weird thing about it, is that it shows us the great power and force at God's disposal, this army of fiery chariots, but then God doesn't actually use any of that power in a violent way. How much more do we see this in Jesus? Instead of, of using violence, Jesus walks the path of suffering actually invoking angelic protection is a temptation for him. Satan tries to tempt him to jump from the temple based on Psalm 91, saying the angels will save you. And I think implicitly you'll publicly demonstrate your power. Maybe we can skip this whole cross business. But Jesus does not give in. He stays in the path of suffering that God's called him to. In the garden of Gethsemane, when this armed mob shows up to arrest him, Peter draws his sword to defend him. Peter has the courage to fight back against the violence these people intend to Jesus, although as it turns out later, he doesn't have enough courage to non-violently stand up for Jesus. But this violence is not Jesus' way. Matthew tells us that Jesus says, "'Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and He will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels?' But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Just like Elisha, Jesus has this massive army of angelic protectors at his beck and call. And just like Elisha, Jesus chooses not to use them violently. But this comes at a much greater cost to Jesus than it ever did to Elisha. Jesus must resist the temptation to call upon the assistance of angels. That's what Matthew's telling us. At any point in his crucifixion, Jesus could have tapped out and called in those angels, but he didn't do it. And that's because Jesus doesn't seek the violent destruction of his enemies. Rather, he seeks to give mercy through his sacrifice You know, following in Jesus' way won't always be easy for us either. Clearly, as we see with Jesus, being on the side of the angels doesn't mean that we will never suffer. It doesn't mean that we can just call in an angelic airstrike on our enemies whenever we want to. Rather, God's often going to show His power through our weakness and our suffering. But aren't we glad that this is the choice that Jesus made? because through His death, we are healed. Through His death, Jesus wins a greater victory than we could imagine. He triumphs over death and Satan and all the powers of hell. He rescues a host of sinners for Himself. And Jesus' gospel power goes out into the world, calling all, Jew and Gentile, to repentance and new life in Him. And friends, this is especially good news if, like me, you know that you are a sinner this morning. If you know that things that you have thought and said and done put you in opposition to God, an enemy to Him, because God is merciful. In Jesus, He has shown love for His enemies, even those who fought with all of their strength against Him, and He has made a way for them to be reconciled to Him in perfect peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray you would open our eyes continually to the reality of this love that you have showed us in Jesus, a love that's so beyond our understanding and expectation, so much so that it shows, shows love to us while we were still enemies. We pray that you would press it deep into our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.